find your Bible and open it to the book of Acts chapter 1, preaching a message entitled, Preparing to Launch. I know you remember in July 16th, we celebrated the 50th anniversary when Americans Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. It was quite a historical and epic event. Most of us will remember where we were when those black and white images were being shown around the world and the USA had done what seemed impossible. And even today, 50 years later, it still seems a little surreal, doesn't it? Do you know when those preparations began to, uh, for America to send someone to the moon? Well, I don't know exactly, but I do know this. It really can be traced back to 1957 for sure when the Russians launched Sputnik, the first satellite to orbit the Earth. And then they followed up by sending Yuri Gagarin, the first cosmonaut, to orbit the Earth in April of 1961. But as you know, in America, by February of 1962, we closed that gap on the race for space by sending John Glenn, who would orbit the Earth some three times. But the battle of world powers would be decisively won in 1969 as Apollo 11 reached the moon. Why do you suppose the victory? Well, can I tell you, there was at least 12 years of diligent preparation and untiring passion, and it paid off. You know as well as me, any endeavor, any business, any church plant has to have some dedicated time of preparation before they ever open their doors. And so it was with the first church in the book of Acts. Remember last Sunday as we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 16, we see that Jesus promised the coming church. It was on the imminent horizon. And he declared some critical things, though, had to happen. He, in essence, he said, uh, the, the week of passion is coming, and it'll occur in Jerusalem. There will be that betrayal, that mock trial, the agony in Gethsemane, his scourging and beatings, and ultimately he would be taken to the cross where he would shed his lifeblood. Then he would defeat our last enemy, the grave, and then certainly the ascension. Before the church must come, there must be the sending of the Holy Spirit, the mandate for us to take the gospel to the world. And we know what happened in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. 3,000 would be saved and baptized, and the Holy Spirit of God fell. But before that, there was this time of preparation and prayer that took place in an upper room in anticipation for all that God desired for the church. In our text this morning, we get the story of anticipation and preparation for all that is soon to be unveiled with the bride of Christ. So let's look at, I know these are familiar, but eight verses today out of Acts chapter 1. Please stand on to reading God's Word. You follow along as I read these first eight verses. Just going to unpack those today, make some observations as we make our own hearts ready and prepared. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, 
he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or season which the Father has put in his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Father, I pray today that the familiarity with this passage would not breed contempt in any way, but we would see it with freshness to really the great unveiling of what you had in store for the church. And so today, Holy Spirit of God, dwell among us. One, I pray that you'd be the comforter for those who are here in need of a touch from the true and living God. Comfort their hearts and souls. But I pray as well that you'd be the convictor of sin, righteousness, and judgment for the sake of our Savior. Point us once again to the hope that we have in the resurrected Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When you begin the, 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 reading the book of Acts, you learn quickly this, that the work of Christ is both finished, yet it's unfinished. The redemptive work, of course, is complete. And you remember as Jesus cried from the, the cross, tetelestai, which means it is finished, his work on the cross, the act of redemption was complete. But the work of evangelism and ministry and missions, of course, was just beginning. So we see this transition taking place because after this three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, he did preach and teach, he trains his disciples, and now he was handing off this responsibility that would be theirs. But he wasn't going to leave them stranded or without power because there was a big task in store, a daunting task, and he was going to send the Holy Spirit. So under Roman number one, you see with me first the waiting of God's promise. We quickly notice that the book of Acts begins by Luke's uh, telling us that it's addressed to Theophilus, a term that means lover of God. It can mean a friend of God. So we really don't know if he's addressing this specifically to a Gentile believer or just all of us who would be friends of God or, or lovers of God. But I know to those who love God, the, the gospel message and the history of church expansion is the wonderful fragrance of eternal life. But to those who reject it and neglect it, guess what? It becomes a stench, a stumbling block, and foolishness. But, uh, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But the command we see in verse 4 was not to leave Jerusalem. Why do you think he was giving this command? A lot of these uh, disciples were Galileans. They would be returning home. And uh, uh, specifically, all that had gone in, on in Jerusalem, uh, uh, Jesus being crucified, they would have undoubtedly had home. But he said, look, I don't want you there. I want you to tarry in Jerusalem. I want you to be obedient. And he simply tells them that they're to wait. I, I don't know about you, but this is certainly true with me. It's a whole lot easier for me to do something than it is to wait. But I will tell you, oftentimes in the church, the answer is not in more activity, but in waiting on God, resting in Him, being patient and being still. Sometimes the work of God is to wait on God. 
You know what it says in Isaiah chapter 40? Those who wait on the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up as wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So notice with me, as they wait for God's promise, we see under letter A there in your outline, their confidence. The basis for their confidence and assurance is God's promise and all that they had experienced during those days with the resurrected Christ. And Jesus had validated to them what he had spoken to them. And the text says that as they uh, observed him during these days, they had, there was many convincing proofs. Now, the Greek word translated proofs, there's a strong word declaring they were confident because of this decisive evidence, these undeniable truths. The theologian uh, C.T. Craig said, these early Christians did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they couldn't find his dead body, but because they had found the living Christ. And so Jesus' resurrection, as we well know, that we believe in, as we just sang, is not some fabricated, imagined hoax invented by a few delusional followers, but the resurrection is backed by undeniable, convincing proofs that he indeed did defeat our last enemy and his resurrection. So after Jesus' resurrection, the Gospels declare that the apostles then Before he ascended, they ate with him, they fellowshiped with him. He taught them kingdom principles for another 40 days. Let me make mention today five strands of testimonies that are convincing proofs that the Christian faith is an unshakable foundation. The first, as you well know, is the empty tomb where Jesus was taken after the crucifixion. And as we well know, those who visited there, the tomb, it was empty. The appearance of Jesus to the apostles and Saul of Tarsus we read about as well and, and to James. And then over 500 it says in the book of 1 Corinthians at one time. And then thirdly the evidence of the trans- transformation of the apostles. We have timid cowards on one hand transformed to be willing to die for the cause and the sake of Christ. But another certainly pillar of proof of, uh, of the resurrection of Christ is relative to even our worship day. They had always worshiped on the Sabbath, but after the resurrection and certainly the coming of Pentecost, they changed their day of worship to Sunday. Plus, when Christ, what Christ had done in their lives and what Christ continues to do in the lives of many of us, give declaration, yes, these are convincing proofs. So the evidence then leads us to a logical conclusion. Jesus rose from the dead, and surely this convincing proof was true with these early followers, and it's true for us today. It's the basis for their confidence. It stands as a centerpiece. It's the premier tenet of the Christian faith. And what a wonderful song we just sang, declaring we believe. They had confidence, but secondly, let's see in verse 5, their compulsion. The promise was the coming of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Certainly this wasn't going to be water baptism as John had baptized. It wasn't a baptism of repentance, but it was the coming and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, as you well know, this was not the origin of the coming of the Holy Spirit. We find the Holy Spirit working uh, in the Old Testament countless times in creation, in prophecies, the writing of the scriptures, and certainly in the ministry of Jesus Christ. While Pentecost was not the beginning of the Holy Spirit of God, it was certainly a new dispensation regarding what was going on with the Holy Spirit of God. Because after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would come upon believers at the time of our conversion. 
By that I mean when someone gives their heart to Christ, guess what? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts through faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for we're all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek. And the baptism is the operation of the Holy Spirit of God, taking an individual believer and making that person a part of the, the, the body of Christ. We use the term regeneration. And this regeneration happens once we come in repentance and faith to believe in Jesus and we receive God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit at that moment. It says in Colossians 2, For in Him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. And then Colossians 2.10, We're complete in Him, who is the head of all principalities and powers. Now, as you well know, and I'm sure you probably have many charismatic friends that uh, oftentimes believes that we as Baptists need to get baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in essence, they're saying we need a second work of grace in our life. Uh, we need some kind of a additional empowerment. And they're often saying, well, you don't even speak in tongues, so you, get, you need to get something else so you can speak in tongues. And they refer to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But you ever wondered what your response should be when, when they throw that at you? You know, I, here, here's what I think it should be. You, you just simply say, you know, I'm complete in Jesus. I gave my heart to him. God's Spirit came to dwell in my heart through faith. He became my Savior, but the Spirit did his mighty work of transforming me. And Jesus Christ is Lord of my life, and the Spirit of God dwells within me. I would go ahead and say, look, I don't need more of God. God needs more of me oftentimes. But I've got all of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to say this with me today. Jesus is enough for me. Say it with me, church. Jesus is enough for me. Isn't that a sweet thing to say? Let's say it again. Jesus is enough for me. So understand here in Acts 2 at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came on all believers. In the Old Testament, we find him coming on certain individuals to do a particular work, whether it was David or Samson or the prophets. But afterwards, he would come upon all who would believe. Also, we need to be reminded that the Holy Spirit will never withdraw again from us. Here's what Jesus promised in John 14, 16. I will ask the Father. He's going to give you the comforter. He's going to give you the helper, the Holy Spirit of God. And he will live with you or be with, with you forever. So these were about to be kingdom days of, uh, of growth and expansion. And God was positioning these apostles and new leaders in the church for what he was about to do. And he says, the, the, this is going to take some preparation. Let me quickly say this this morning. I believe God's preparing us here at Hoffmantown Church for the coming days. I believe that God has brought Mary and I here with a purpose in mind. To somehow, in some way, by the grace of God, to be a catalyst. A friend coming from the east <laughs> to lay a foundation for what may be in store in the days of head. Can I tell you, I'm working, I'm praying, I'm meeting with church leaders, I'm meeting with the search committee, I'm meeting with the staff, I'm dreaming, I'm desiring that God would certainly get us ready for his coming afresh. Let's make these days of preparation, days of waiting. Yes, we've got to wait on the Lord. But sometimes that's a little confusing. What do you mean waiting on the Lord? You know, I, I like to use the analogy of, uh, that doesn't certainly mean doing nothing. And, and, 
and, and we can remember it if we think of it in terms of a, a table waiter. Uh, man, I don't know about you, but I don't want to get a table waiter that does nothing. <laughs> no, of course not. We want someone who, who gives us attention, who is waiting on us. He's winsome, who, 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 who's showing real interest in what he's doing. He's serving us, and, and he's doing it robustly. And I believe that's what we do when we're waiting on the Lord. We serve the Lord. We do the things we know to do. But truth of the matter is we're confessing if, as we wait on Him. God, we're dependent upon You. We're preparing our hearts for You. And You come and do the great work. They were waiting for God's promise. But secondly, we noticed as well, they were wondering about God's plan. So according to verse 3, Jesus taught the disciples many things about the kingdom of God. And when you study the disciples, Jesus often taught about the kingdom the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, which were synonymous, of course. And surely when Jesus came to earth, he brought God's kingdom, but the kingdom was not earthly, it was spiritual. Still, the apostles had not really yet comprehended all of this. So notice with me under A, their misunderstanding. We see this in verse 6. The apostles still thought this was just a Jewish deal. And even though the Great Commission had been given to go outside of Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, I don't believe they'd quite grasp that through their faith in Jesus Christ, that somehow, in some way, the Gentiles were going to be grafted on to become a part of God's covenant people. There wasn't anything wrong with the question when he, they asked him, when's he going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He didn't scold them. Uh, he didn't even bother straightening out, straightening out their eschatology because here's what the Bible teaches, that the kingdom one day will be restored to Israel. In the millennial reign of Christ, all the Old Testament promises will be fulfilled in them. But the when of that question is divinely and deliberately concealed. This new age, the church age, was about to be ushered in. This was part of God's providential plan. Israel as a nation was unrepentant and obstinate. They did not embrace Jesus the Messiah who had come to deliver them from their sins. But you can understand the confusion from the apostles' part. I mean, they had heard Jesus say, look, I've been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. So it's not surprising that they would be curious about what's going on then. Are you going to restore everything to the nation of Israel? But as we well know now, the rejection of the Israel people became an open door for Gentiles to be a part of the family of God. That's what John wrote in the prologue to his gospel. He came into his own, his own received him not. But now to as many as received him, to them he gave the privilege to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. It seems Jesus didn't want these men to get sidetracked. That's what I guess. Sidetracked with things that would, they would have no control over. But their focus was to be on going to the highways and the hedges, compelling people of every nation to repent, to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Let me just park right there for just a moment. Because it's easy for people to get obsessed with doctrinal anomalies. With many, the issue of the doctrine of last things and the, the study of eschatology has become their obsession. I've known many who knew more about the 70 weeks of Daniel and the meaning of the badger skin and revelation than they did the gospel message, the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. So while we need to be informed about the promise of the return of Christ and our passion obsession ought to be what Jesus called us to do. 
And that's keep on telling the simple and saving message that Jesus saves. Listen, this is the mandate for all of us. Let's keep sowing gospel seeds. Let's keep telling our neighbors, our city, our family, to all who, we, who would give us an attentive ear about the hope they can have in Jesus Christ. But once again, relative to eschatology, Jesus seems to emphasize the, uh, once again that the when rests with the Father. In, excuse me, in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, he said, I don't even know the hour, but still their curiosity of national restoration prompted this inquiry. Listen, there are several positions on eschatology. And I don't know where you are at in all of this. There's obviously premillennialism. There is amillennialism. There's postmillennialism. There is uh, historical premillennialism. There's dispensationalism. And, 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 and a, a lot of you don't even know where you stand on that. That's okay. That, that really is okay. And we can disagree on some of those tenets. We will probably. But I'm telling you, everyone who believes the Bible must agree on these two truths regarding Christ's return. One, that Jesus personally is coming back. That's what he says here in Acts chapter 1. You know, I believe that place of his return very well could be the Mount of Olives because it says in Zechariah 14, on that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem on the east and will split in half from the east to the west, forming a huge valley. Then the Lord will come with his holy ones with him. Secondly, you've got to believe that Jesus is personally coming back. Secondly, when Jesus returns this second time, he will come triumphantly in all of his glory. What a contrast to the first coming of God in the flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. Born in a humble cow stall in Bethlehem, but his return is talked about in Matthew chapter 25. It says, And the Son of Man is going to come in his glory, and his holy angels with him, and he will sit on the throne in his glory. Because we know, know one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there was a misunderstanding about these matters of eschatology. There often is. But he does give this mandate. You know what the mandate is? It's really verse 8. He calls us to go, to go, to be and to do and to go. Which brings me to the last point. They were waiting for God's promise. They were wondering about God's plan. Thirdly, they were witnessing, they were witnessing with God's power. Here's the outline of the entire book. I call this the master's master plan. It's about being God's witnesses. It's about starting in the community. It's about going to the county, the country, the continent, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Just to remind you quickly, what's going on in the first seven chapters of Acts really occurred right there in Jerusalem and Judea. As you remember, Stephen is stoned uh, in Acts chapter 7, and then suddenly the church is dispersed. We find uh, excuse me, Philip preaching down in Samaria. We find the, uh, the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 13, sending out Saul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey to evangelize the uttermost parts of the world. And it's just as Jesus had instructed about going. It was about expansion. It was about growth. It was about going and telling the truths of the kingdom. So this is the last commandment Jesus gave. These red letter words are important words. Certainly the words of Jesus are important. Every word of the Bible is important. 
But these are the last printed words that we have recorded for the Savior saying for us to go. You know, I think it's always curious to, to, to learn of what someone's last words are. And I did a little research on that. Uh, with that intrigue, I, 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 a couple of things that you might find interesting. One, it was P.T. Barnum who asked at death's door in 1891 this question. What were the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? Winston Churchill, before passing away on January 24, 1965, you know what he said? I'm bored with it all. Andrew Jackson, 7th President of the United States in 1865, says, Oh, do not cry. Be good children. We'll all meet in heaven. Harriet Ward Beecher, 19th century evangelist, passed away on March 8, 1887. He said, Now, here comes the mystery. And here Jesus in his last words. You know what he's saying? Tell of me. Share my love. Give a testimony. Be a witness. Tell what I've done in your life. Under A, we see the power he mentions. Jesus is saying, you're going to have to accomplish it on your own strength and power. I'm going to give you the power. The Holy Spirit's going to dwell within you. That word that's translated power there, it literally means capacity and power to do what you otherwise could never do. And certainly how true it is with God's indwelling spirit, this Christian movement would, would have been without it. We would have been doomed from the start. We had to have the empowerment of God. But with God's power, with God's presence within, as we know, they could and would succeed. Right here's the problem with many of us today. Even in our witnessing, we see ourselves and we think that we're going to have to do whatever we're going to do for the Lord in our own power and strength. With really understanding ongoingly, he's given us the Holy Spirit for this task. And so believe me, it's not like if you're being a witness that you've got to talk somebody into something. Just ask God to help you and communicate in a way that would honor him and be a good witness and tell of him through the power of the Spirit. Listen, we know how feeble we are, and we know uh, all that's wrong in our own life. And for the love of God, he gives us his Spirit, the empowerment for us to do as he promised. How do we do that? You know, the Bible says we've got to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. We've got to yield our life to God's Holy Spirit. And when we do that, we'll discover that we're not having to do this on our own wit, our own wisdom, or certainly our own power. I I remember the story well. I remember visiting with a a guy who, uh, back in my hometown of Ada, before I was actually in the ministry, uh, he was a a cowboy and got saved kind of... uh, probably in his late 40s and a little older when he gave his heart to Christ. And, and uh, as you might expect, uh, he wasn't the best at sharing the gospel in logical order for someone to clearly understand, but God used him. And I'll share this personal story with you. I remember uh, on a visit, uh, he's telling Bill, who needed to be saved, that God would save him and then and then somehow Pete gets off on Melchizedek, the, the, the priest of Salem, and how that Melchizedek was, had encountered Abraham and they had communion together and, and then Abraham gave him a tenth of all of, uh, all of his, his wealth. I'm going, holy cow, where's he going with this story? 
And, and finally, he tells a little bit around that. And then finally, he just he, he, he turns and said, Bill, would you like to get saved? Bill said, yes, I would. And I thought, man, you can't mess this thing up if the Spirit of God is at work. And I'm telling you, you'll find the same thing being true. Man, I can't tell you. I, I have preached on stewardship, and someone came down the aisle and said, I want to give my heart to God. You know why? Because God's Spirit's working in their life. And we've got to have God's Spirit working in our life to make this connection with those that the Spirit of God is working through. Nothing replaces the power and the working of the Holy Spirit of God. Under B, we see the privilege that's ours. Jesus says, I want you to be witnesses unto me. We can represent him. Is there a greater privilege than that, than going in the name of Jesus Christ? He says, I'm going to teach people to observe all that I've commanded because it's not about your power. It's not about your position. It's not about your personality. It's not even about your persuasiveness. But you are going in the power that I will give you. What a privilege it is to tell of him. To be witnesses. That word witness is actually in the Greek New Testament. The same word translated martyr. And certainly these men that he was giving this command to. Many would be martyrs. All the apostles save the apostle John. They knew the privilege that had been given to them to share the testimony of what God was doing. It was what they had experienced. And we have a responsibility to tell of our experience. It really like in a courtroom as we would give testimony on a witness stand and we put our hands on the Bible and we would simply say, I promise to tell the whole truth, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's what we have to do. We tell the truth. It's not about our life, but it is about what Christ has done in our life. And so the, the question begs for you today, are you willing to do that? You see, sometimes it does take a little courage to break the silence. But here's what I know. God continually puts people in your path and he puts them in my path if we can just speak a word of witness. You say, well, you know, I just I, I didn't have time to share the gospel. I'm telling you, you can, you can sow the gospel seed. Because here's what I've noticed in my life. Listen to me today. Oftentimes, the privilege that I've had of leading people to Christ, someone has sown a lot of gospel seeds before they ever encountered me. And we have a responsibility somehow, by the grace of God, to weave a web of witness around those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some sow some water, some harvest. Let's do our part. Let's agree to be a witness. And finally, the process. He said, start right here. Jerusalem was the birthplace of the New Testament church. In Acts chapter 2, the church ignited. 3,000 were saved. Soon it spread outside Jerusalem. And the tragedy of Stephen's death would be what ignited the gospel to be spread throughout Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. You know, it does remind me of this. All things do work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. So after the first martyr became the empowerment, it seems, to witness. And it says in Acts chapter 8, 4, they were scattered then and they went everywhere, everywhere, preaching the word. Not the apostles, those who had spread the, the, the people, the lay people, they were spreading the word. They were telling the message. That's the plan of God. 
And that's what he's saying here. This is second person plural. He's saying all of you, all of you do this. Be witnesses. The going had a sense of urgency. You see, we all have eternity to celebrate the victories. But we have but one swift hour before the sun sets on those who we can win. Let's be witnesses. Let's commit to live our life in such a way that we gladly tell of the difference Christ has made in our life. Please bow your head with me. As David comes and we prepare to give an invitation today, really I pray that you would pray this prayer in your own heart. God, use me. Bring to mind someone that I can speak a good word to. To share the difference that you've made in my life and the difference that he can make in any life. I pray that we would first have a sensitivity. Lord, prepare our hearts. Destroy the hardness of our hearts that easily become indifferent and calloused make fallow our own hearts I pray if there's any here today that know you not and a free pardon of sin that this would be their day of divine appointment I pray that there's been some people that's been trafficking by them that has been been weaving this web of of sharing the truth of the gospel and And today they're ready to make a decision. I pray they would come today, come home to stay. Come to be a part of your people, your church. I pray, Father, that uh, as we seek to lift Jesus up today, that you would do only as you can do. And that is bring fresh conviction in our life. Help us to be contrite of heart. Help us to be people who continually live a life of repentance. That we can continually stay anchored to the hope and the truth and the power of God that lives within us. So this is your time, Lord. We can tell the story. We can give the outward call, but only you can change a heart. So, Lord, we're dependent upon you. Send your Holy Spirit afresh. This is your invitation, your time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand with me today? May we be a shining light to the nations. Let's sing this uh, invitation hymn. If I could pray with you today or if one of the staff that is front could pray with you. Uh, we want to give you opportunity to do that. Do that. We will not be here very long, but uh, we certainly want to extend our invitation. I invite you to come while we sing. God calls. Come now. May we be a shining light to the nations, a shining light to the peoples of the earth, to the whole world sees the
bless you for being here today. Let's say the Lord's Prayer together before we go. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God bless you for being here today.